I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and you're listening to Writers on Writing. My guest today is Celestine. She's the author of three novels, Everything I Never Told You, Little Fires Everywhere, and Our Missing Hearts. Her first novel, Everything I Never Told You, was a New York Times bestseller, a New York Times notable book of 2014, and Amazon's number one best book of 2014. Her second novel, Little Fires Everywhere, was a number one New York Times bestseller, and number one indie next bestseller, and Amazon's best fiction of 2017. It was adapted as a limited series on Hulu, starring Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington. And her third novel, Our Missing Hearts, is out tomorrow, October 4th, 2022. Celeste grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Shaker Heights, Ohio. She graduated from Harvard and earned an MFA from the University of Michigan. Her fiction and essays have appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, and many other publications. She's a recipient of the Pushcart Prize, a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, and a Guggenheim Fellowship, among other honors. Her brand new novel, Our Missing Hearts, is the focus of our talk today. Before we bring her on, a little reminder. If in the 24 years that Writers on Writing has been bringing authors, agents, and poets to you, and if you've gleaned anything from the show and have found it's helped you with your writing, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. We appreciate every bit of support, no matter how small. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Now for the show. Celeste, it's great to talk with you. Um, Our Missing Hearts. I love this book. And I, of course, I can't help but wonder as I'm reading how the story came about and and the evolution of the story and and the idea for our missing hearts. Um, Could you tell us a bit? Sure. So the story really came out of the relationship between this mother and the son. I had been thinking about creative mothers in my last novel, Little Fires Everywhere, where there's a, a visual artist who's the mother. And I started thinking about another creative mother and what if her child didn't really understand what her work was about and why she was so interested in it and why it was maybe even sort of a rival for his attention. Um, And so that was the relationship that really started off the story. For me, it's always a personal relationship. It's always about people and usually about families. And then uh, as I started to work on the book and the story started to come together, the 2016 presidential election happened and there was the rise of the far right and the rising to the surface of a lot of the things that had had been simmering for some time. And because the world outside of my office started to feel sort of dystopian, it really felt like all the systems that had been in place were, were rapidly crumbling. That started to work its way into the novel. And I started to imagine, well, what if What if they were living in a world that was like ours, but with the volume turned up a little bit? What might that experience be like? And and it kind of grew from there. 
Yeah, as I was reading, I was thinking about, of course, the pandemic. And while it's not directly in there, it's very much coloring the story, at least Mm -hmm. for me, it did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had been working on this book for some years before the pandemic, obviously, um, but it it wasn't coming together. I, I didn't know how to write the book and I didn't I didn't know if I wanted to write the book. And then in about April of 2020, when everything had closed down and everyone was sort of sealed in their houses and we were living in this atmosphere of dread, I actually wrote to my agent and I said, I know I'm supposed to be working on this different book, but this book is the one that keeps calling to me. It keeps coming back to me. And and I hope it's okay if I stop working on that other thing and I start working on this. And she wrote back and said, I'm so glad you said that because I was actually just about to email you the same thing. I keep thinking about this other book. And, and for me, even though the book is not about the pandemic, it is about a lot of the feelings and the questions I was asking myself as we were living through this collective societal dilemma. Um, how do you raise a child in this time? in an atmosphere that just feels like it's saturated with fear, how do you hold on to hope for the future? How can you keep a belief that the world can get better? And that's kind of what pulled the book together in the end. Hmm. And Bird Gardner, he's your protagonist. Where did he come from? I, I liked the idea of looking at the world and especially this world that's a little different from ours through the eyes of a child. So Bird is 12 in the novel which to me is an age where you are still a child, but you're starting to just lean towards adulthood. You're starting to get a sense of the larger world out there, the history that underlies everything that you've always taken for granted. And you're also starting to get a sense of your parents as people, or at least that was what I remember from about that age, that realization that your parents had a life before you and that maybe they even have a life outside of you now. And that maybe they're actually fallible and human rather than the sort of, you know, all encompassing figures that you'd seen them uh, as your whole life. And so Bird really rose out of that impulse to show someone who is just waking up to the sort of realities of the world. Mm. I love his relationship with his father. Mm. Excuse me. His mother has gone missing, but his father is interesting in that. I don't know, just when I think he's going to do something nasty he becomes like just the father you want to have in a situation like this um i'm curious about him too where did he come from yeah ethan who is is bird's father i think is is a character i feel a lot of sympathy for he's in a really difficult position he's he's a single father at this point because his wife bird's mother has left the family that's that's known from the beginning of the book and Ethan really wants to keep his child safe, but I think he's not really equipped to to know how to do that. Ethan is a white man and his son Bird is mixed race because his mother is a Chinese American. And I think that Ethan doesn't really know how to handle the conversations that he might have with Bird. He understands, but he doesn't know exactly what, what threats the world might bring to his son. And so, Part of the time he's trying to kind of shelter Bird. And then part of the time he's also trying to to raise his child to still live and enjoy life and still connect with other people. And that's sort of his dilemma. And um, 
he's he's just a character that's very close to my heart. Mm. And he works at a library and the books, many of the books are uh, being pulped, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, books in general are being pulped into toilet paper, which is interesting in that you were working on this during the (laughs) You know, (laughs) I I hadn't made that connection. I mean, I think that line was in the book before we got to the the, uh, the, the great toilet paper shortage of 2020, but uh, now it takes on a different resonance, right? we, you know, we, we take those kinds of basic necessities for granted. <laughs> we do. Um, but yeah, in this world, um, it, it, someone described it recently as a, as a post-democratic world. And I feel like that's a good way of looking <laughs> at it. It's an atmosphere in which American culture, and that's heavily in quotes, is supposed to be preserved and protected. And anything that might be un-American or seen as a threat to American culture, again, very heavily in quotes, is kind of removed as a potential danger to society. And that includes books. And so Ethan, who works at a library as a shelver, just returning the books back to the shelves, I think is really aware of the number of books and the amount of history and the number of stories that are kind of disappearing in this world. Well, and in our current world, right? Exactly, it's, this is, this is this is not a hypothetical situation, unfortunately. Um, I took uh, Margaret Atwood's sort of statement about writing The Handmaid's Tale, where she said she didn't put anything in the book that didn't have a precedent in real life somewhere. I kind of took that as my guiding principle, too, because I didn't want people to be able to say, oh, well, that was so far from reality <laughs> that that would never happen. Right. And in fact, as we've seen, um, you know, those things have been happening all along, but they've kind of come to the front of the news cycle right now. There are currently attacks on libraries and schools, and I I mean literal attacks, uh, where a small group of people want to remove certain books because they think that they're dangerous. Mm. And that, to me, feels very dangerous, the idea that we're going to remove these stories and we're going to erase all of these words and these histories based on the threats of violence from a small group of people. But that's, that's the reality we currently are in. Mm. Yeah. It makes me also think in terms of your book um, with world building um, Mm -hmm. and how much of that did you do before you began writing just as, you know, with your characters, how much, did you know about them before you began writing? Yeah. For both of those, it's really a process of discovery for me. I go into the story because there are characters that intrigue me or oftentimes they, they confuse or confound me. I think, why would you do that? How did you, how did you become like this? And I write a lot that doesn't end up in the book. So I write what I call off the page. It's just in a notebook somewhere trying to get to know who these characters are, what they care about, what their important memories are, you know, what their relationships are like. And that's where the story comes from for me. So it really is discovery. And the same was true of the world. I would start to write and I would get a sense of what was important to the characters. And then I would get a sense of the ways in which the world was preventing them from having those things. So this is the story of a boy who is looking for his mother and he's trying to understand the story of how his mother left. It's maybe different from the one that he's made up or the one that he's been told. In a way, the world is going to withhold those stories from him. 
And so for me, that was that was sort of the, the way that I discovered what the parameters of the world were like. And then to kind of flesh that out, I would go and I would look at history. I would read a lot about different times when authoritarian, authoritarian governments were, um, were in control. And I'd look at, you know, what was Stalin doing to, to writers and artists? <laughs> well, not good things. You know, what was happening during the McCarthy era? What was happening, um, you know, in the buildup to World War II? And, you know, there's, there's no shortage of plenty of times that this has happened across the world. And I would look at the ways that words and stories and people had been under pressure and then the ways that people looked to subvert that. And I tried to kind of learn from those things and take from them um, ideas that I could use in this world. Hmm. Is, is that a lot of um, research you're doing before you even put a word on the page in, in terms of the book, not, not journals or notes mm -hmm. or, or that, um, um, or does it begin before you start writing the book? And then as you're writing, you're digging up more. It's, it's kind of concurrent, honestly. I, I start writing with the characters and then when I run into things I don't know, I go, well, what, what does it feel like to live in a time where there's lots of, let's say, censorship? Then I would go and I would read a bunch of things and I would, you know, I would read, um, you know, testimonies from the McCarthy era. I would read testimonies from, uh, you know, writings of people who were writing um, during the time of Stalin's purge. And then I would go back to, to the page, my own page, and I would write with that in the back of my mind, you know, that kind of being the, the light that I was shining towards this world. And then I'd write some more until I'd get to something else I didn't know and go, how do people respond to that? How do, you know, how, how do they resist? If you can't get a printing press or you can't publish your book, how do you get your story out? And so then I would go back to history. And so it's really kind of a ping-ponging back and forth but really in almost in parallel that I'm building this world and I'm learning about what happened in our world. Mm, I love that. I love that. Do you, you know, when you, a few minutes ago, you um, sort of gave me a log line for the book. And I wondered if you, if that's something you felt you had to come up with before you, again, like before you started writing, did you have to know kind of what this was going to be and how mm. you could, talk about it in a sentence or two? No, very much no. <laughs> um, I, as I said, you know, I, I, I kind of admire writers who can do that stuff beforehand because I feel like, um, I, I really envy that. It seems like it would be easier than what I do, which is that I always start with the character in this situation. And I don't actually always know what the story itself is about. I don't know what my themes are about. I know it interests me in terms of these particular people, but I don't know the big picture and the big themes until usually I'm done with the first draft. So for me, the first draft is very much kind of feeling my way around in the dark. And when I get to the end of the first draft, that's when I can take a step back and usually a month or two away from the manuscript because I need it's sort of a, almost a, a, a palate cleanse to see it properly. And then I look back and I go, oh, these are the things that I guess I'm interested in. And these, uh, these parts don't fit, but these are the parts where, oh, there's something more there. And so for me, it's really about following kind of my instinct and my interest. And at the end, if I've done my job right, then maybe I can talk to you about what questions I realized I was working on and what themes I was working on. But at the time, I, I don't know that sort of stuff. I don't figure that out until very close to the end. 
Do you have readers during that time, the time that you're away from it, that month or two that you're away? Is anyone reading it and getting back to you, you know, before you go back in? In the first round, no. In the first round, it's it's usually just me. And I like to keep the manuscript fairly close just because, as I say, I don't know what I'm doing. It feels to me like a little, you know, very tender little green shoot. And I feel like I need to shelter it quite a bit. But usually what happens is I'll hold the manuscript myself and then I'll go back and read it. And then I'll do another draft. I always call that first thing my zeroth draft because I feel like rather than the first draft, it kind of gives me, it gives me a mulligan in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like that's before I even figure out what the book is. So I'll go back and I'll do a, you know, a, another revision of it that becomes sort of the real first draft. And that might be the draft that I give to readers. Um, but very early on, it's mostly me kind of trying to figure out what the story is. Hmm. Did you have a similar process with your uh, first two novels, Everything I Never Told You and Little Fires Everywhere? Was it similar or have you evolved to this way of working? I, you know, I wish I could say that it was, it was more efficient now, but I think it was actually the same all throughout. <laughs> Um, I think that I, maybe I just have to accept that this is, this is my process, but it is always a matter of kind of wandering backwards into the story and figuring out what the story is. And for me, it takes a lot of working that out on the page before I even have something that feels like an actual story that I can give to readers and say, hey, is this interesting? Does it make sense? At the beginning, there's not even story. There's just mm-hmm. stuff. <laughs> So then at some point you share it with readers. Yes. Um, I've got a couple of readers who we've been exchanging work for a long time. I've got a writing group um, that we've been together now for about 10 years, as well as friends from grad school. And then my agent also is a wonderful reader and she's known my work for long enough now. And I trust her judgment that she really can kind of give me feedback and say, these are the parts that it seems like you're excited about, or, Ooh, here's where the, the heat is, is what one of my friends likes to say go in that direction. Hmm. Um, And they can help me figure out where I'm wandering off the path and where I'm kind of going the way that I need to go. Hmm. That's great. Celeste, I'd love to hear you read from uh, Our Missing Hearts. All right. Um, I'm going to read just a a little passage and it'll be from quite at the beginning. Um, It's actually the very beginning and then a couple of pages later, but it'll hopefully give anyone who hasn't read a a sense of, of what the world is like. The letter arrives on a Friday, slit and resealed with a sticker, of course, as all their letters are, inspected for your safety, packed. It had caused confusion at the post office, the clerk unfolding the paper inside, studying it, passing it up to his supervisor, then the boss. But eventually it had been deemed harmless and sent on its way. No return address, only a New York, New York postmark, six days old. On the outside, his name, Bird. And because of this, he knows it is from his mother. He's not been Bird for a long time. We named you Noah after your father's father, his mother told him once. Bird was all your own doing. The word that, when he said it, felt like him. Something that did not belong on earth. A small, quick thing. An inquisitive chirp a self that curled up at the edges. The school hadn't liked it. Bird is not a name, they'd said. His name is Noah, his kindergarten teacher fuming. He won't answer when I call him. He only answers to Bird. 
Because his name is Bird, his mother said. He answers to Bird, so I suggest you call him that. Birth certificate be damned. She'd taken a Sharpie to every handout that came home, crossing off Noah, writing Bird on the dotted line instead. That was his mother, formidable and ferocious when her child was in need. In the end, the school conceded, though after that, the teacher had written Bird in quotation marks, like a gangster's nickname. Dear Bird, please remember to have your mother sign a permission slip. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, Bird is respectful and studious, but needs to participate more fully in class. It wasn't until he was nine, after his mother left, that he became Noah. His father says it's for the best and won't let anyone call him Bird anymore. If anyone calls you that, he says, you correct them. You say, sorry, no, that's not my name. It was one of the many changes that took place after his mother left. A new apartment, a new school, a new job for his father, an entirely new life. As if his father had wanted to transform them completely so that if his mother ever came back, she wouldn't even know how to find them. He'd passed his old kindergarten teacher on the street last year on his way home. Well, hello, Noah, she said. How are you this morning? And he could not tell whether it was smugness or pity in her voice. He's 12 now. He's been Noah for three years, but Noah still feels like one of those Halloween masks, something rubbery and awkward he doesn't quite know how to wear. She'd left them, that was all his father would say. And then getting down on his knees to look Bird in the eye, it's for the best, forget about her. I'm not going anywhere, that's all you need to know. Back then, Bird hadn't known what she'd done. He only knew that for weeks he'd heard his parents' muffled voices in the kitchen long after he was supposed to be asleep. Usually it was a soothing murmur that lulled him to sleep in minutes, a sign that all was well. But lately it had been a tug of war instead. First his father's voice, then his mother's, bracing itself, gritting its teeth. It wasn't until later that he learned the truth, hurled at him on the playground like a stone to the cheek. Your mom is a traitor. DJ Pierce spitting on the ground beside Bird's sneakers. Everyone knew his mother was a person of Asian origin. Kung Pao's, some kids called them. This was not news. You could see it in Bird's face if you looked. All the parts of him that weren't quite his father. Hints in the tilt of his cheekbones, the shape of his eyes. Being a PAO, the authorities reminded everyone, was not itself a crime. Pact is not about race, the president was always saying. It is about patriotism and mindset. But your mom started riots, DJ said. My parents said so. She was a danger to society and they were coming for her. And that's why she ran away. His father had warned him about this. People will say all kinds of things, he told Bird. You just focus on school. You say, we have nothing to do with her. You say, she's not a part of my life anymore. He'd said it. We have nothing to do with her, my dad and me. She's not a part of my life anymore. Inside him, his heart tightened and creaked. On the blacktop, the wad of DJ's spit glistened and frothed. As you were reading, I was wondering if um, during the writing of Our Missing Hearts, did, did you read it? Do you read aloud a lot? I, I read 
I read it over as I go. Um, I'm kind of an iterative writer. And so I write a lot by ear. So sometimes I read out loud. Um, sometimes I read aloud in my head, but I'm always writing sort of for sound. And if it doesn't sound right, I have to go back and kind of rework it until it's close enough that I can move forward. Hmm. Yeah, you know, that, that reminds me of something else. It's <laughs> always reminding me of something else. Um, when you're working a scene or maybe in revision, how do you know when a scene is boring only to you because you've worked on it for so long or <laughs> it's boring in general and has to go? I mean, is it a, is it a gut thing? I mean, do you really have to know yourself well to feel like, you know what, you've just, you need to put this aside. It's, <laughs> it's some of it is a gut feel sometimes sometimes very few times I can tell that I've nailed a scene because I'm like, this is exactly what it is in my brain. It expresses what it is, you know, what I was thinking and there it is on the page. But a lot of times I think that's the kind of fine tuning you have to do with other readers. You go, I think this is okay, but I don't know if it's right anymore because I've read it 67 times in the past week. Can you tell me? And I think that's when it can be really helpful to have other, other readers that you trust who can tell you honestly if it's working or it's not working because sometimes you just can't hear it anymore. Right, right. You've, you've, you've looked at it so much. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to throw the whole book out. Yeah, that's, there's very much a feeling at which uh, it's nice to have someone take the book away from you, kind of like pry it out of your hands and go, this is, this is, this isn't stop tinkering. Yeah. It's okay. Let it go. <laughs> well, speaking of tinkering, your first page, your first pages, but especially the first page feels pretty much perfect. And I wondered if, I mean, you, you've had a couple of very successful books, so I don't know how that changes the process or how it changed for you, but are you still really concerned with your first page and first pages that they kind of work as well as they can possibly work? Yeah, I, it's that's still important to me. And I don't think that will ever change because for me, the first page is how I get into the book. And I have to get the voice down in the first few pages. And that was something I worked at a lot in this book. The first page, the, the section that I read um, has been present from pretty early on. And it, I don't know that there weren't other beginnings to it, but when I got this part down and this voice, I was like, okay, I think that's the sound and the feel that I want. And so it's important to me as a writer, but I do think it's also important to readers. That's essentially their entry into the book as well. And it's, it's sort of the writer's way of signaling to the reader where you're going to go and what you're going to do. And you have to give the reader a fairly accurate impression of what's going to happen or else if they get 50 pages into the book and it's become something else and it's got a completely different voice, they're going to feel a little bit fooled. And it feels like it's in everyone's best interest to make that first page as strong as possible, but also as representative of the whole project as possible. And that's, that's hard to do. So, so was it always, always a 12-year-old boy? It was. It was. There was a moment where I thought, oh, maybe he should be younger. And then I realized that 12 was about the right age. But he was always going to be an adolescent or, or on the verge of adolescence because that's, I realized that was crucial to the story I was telling. This was going to be a story about 
a child who was leaving home for the first time, right? And in a sense, getting a sense of the wider world that he had not experienced in all senses of the world. Geographically, he leaves home, but he also leaves the familiar and safe space and he goes out into a world that's considerably less safe. And that always felt like the right journey for someone who was around the age of 12, you know, that almost teenagery kind of age to have, because that's the age at which I think usually we start to do that. And it's the age at which we start to get a sense of our parents as having a whole other self as well. Yeah. And he, you know, at 12, especially with Bird, he's, you know, he, he's wise in certain ways, but he's still a kid. Exactly. He's, he's, he's both, he's kind of on the cusp. There was a brief period in writing this where I was like, maybe he needs to be younger. Maybe this needs to be a story of sort of lost innocence and maybe he should be much younger. Mm. And I tinkered with it. And I, I realized thanks to, you know, writer friends that I was chatting with, but also what was on the page, it didn't work as well because he needed to be old enough to do some of these things on his own while still being a child. If he'd been 17, I don't think the story would have worked as well because in a sense, he's not exactly a child anymore, not in the same way that you are when you're 12. But if he'd been five, I don't think logistically he could have gone to do these things. And I don't think he would have had enough understanding to understand all of the things that he's, he's about to encounter. Yeah, I think he's the perfect age. <laughs> it, it's one of the things where, you know, I tend to second guess myself as a writer. Uh-huh. Go, oh, maybe it's wrong. And then you eventually realize that maybe your instincts were good in the first place. But it's good to kind of like it's like kicking the tires on a car. You kind of mm-hmm. make sure that it's it's approximately right. Um, it, it's a good way of sort of checking yourself, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, your novels, I, I think I like your novels so much because they're literary, yet you're always dealing with crime in some way, (laughs) on some level. And I think of it as literary suspense, although I don't think that's an actual genre. Um, But do you think about genre or do you think about books that have been influential and, and kind of where they fall on the genre scale in terms of what you write or what you started to write? Oh, I don't. That's an interesting question. I I don't think about genre when I'm writing. I mean, I consider myself to be a literary writer, again, in quotes, whatever that means. And I guess for me, it means that they don't necessarily fit easily into any genre. But I read pretty omnivorously. Um, I love a good mystery. I have read a lot of what I guess we would now call speculative fiction, which spans a pretty wide range of things. I like realistic fiction as well. And I I try to read widely, partly because I'm really interested in different ways to tell a story. And one of the things that I've noticed is that what what we tend to consider different genres are blending into each other more and more. And Mm. I kind of like that. I like, for example, that Colson Whitehead can write a novel that is somewhat historical, like The Underground Railroad or The Nickel Boys, but it has some sort of speculative elements. And then he can also write Zone One, which is a zombie novel, right? <laughs> and I, I like, for example, that um, Emily St. John Mandel wrote Station Eleven, that previously, I think that she had been consi- considered sort of a suspense or a thriller writer. And there are certainly elements of that in Station Eleven, but it's also sort of a spec. It, it is a speculative novel. It's sort of sci-fi, but it's also a very human and literary novel. And I think that's 
that's true of all of her work, actually. So I don't know if the genres are changing or if just our perception of what the genres are is changing, but I like that blurring of lines because it makes for more ways to, to come at stories and to, to share the stories. Yeah, I do too. I love that. Um, <clears throat> and it's fun. It's also fun to be like, oh, so you're going to write a book about like stone giants. Okay, cool. Let's <laughs> see how that goes. And it, it's fun to see people play in a way. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. I hope it's, I mean, I love the blur too, and, and it would be great if it is changing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there used to not be categories, right? It was a story. It was, uh, it was yeah. you know, and, writing. And I think that those categories have always sort of shifted too, that our sense of what is in those categories in any given time is a little bit of a moving target. That books that we might now classify as like science fiction were not really seen. There was just fiction, right? And then now what we might call science fiction is going to be very different from what was science fiction, you know, 50 years ago. Um, that it the that those categories are really malleable, I feel like is a reflection of just sort of how readers and writers are changing too. Mm. I wonder if it has anything to do also with um, uh, bookstores. I mean, there's more and more bookstores opening by younger people. Mm -hmm. And I, I was in one at, in Idlewild not long ago, Speakeasy. I love this little bookstore because it was like there, you know, the fiction was over here and, and, you know, anime was over there, but, you know, within the fiction section, there weren't any categories. It was just, I, yeah. you know, all there. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that happening more and more. And I wonder if this is just kind of a general trend of just being more open to things being more than one thing at a time. Do you know what I mean? Like this could be a detective story, yeah. but it's also literary fiction, right? And it's also a historical novel, right? Like you're thinking about how it can fit in more than one box at a time. It can wear more than one hat, whatever your analogy is. I feel like that's a concept that we're starting to, to think about just broadly, maybe you can be more than one thing at one time. You can have more than one identity. And so maybe a book can too. I kind of like that, that way of looking mm -hmm. at it. Mm -hmm. Well, back to your book, I wanted to ask you about the lack of quotation marks. Yes. Um, <laughs> that was a surprise to me as well. Honestly, when I started writing, as I said, you know, I, I kind of, I drive by feel at the beginning a little bit. And I was finding that I wasn't using quotation marks. And that was odd to me because honestly, I sometimes get frustrated when there are not quotation marks in books that I read. And it took me a while to, to say, well, okay, that's my instinct, but is it serving the book? Why, why is that my instinct? And does it help? And eventually I think I realized that the reason quotation marks felt a little bit wrong in this book is that I did want it a little bit to be a slightly blurred boundary between what was being told and what was being said in the novel. And eventually, again, these are the sorts of things I realized late in the process, not, not at the beginning. I realized that part of this book was about the idea of storytelling and particularly oral storytelling, whether it's telling a folk tale around a fire or a bedtime story or whispering a kind of history uh, without giving too much away uh, about the book, there's, there's a part in which stories are kind of told to each other to be remembered rather than written down for, for safety concerns. 
And I was thinking about how when those stories are told, the voice of the person who is telling the story and the voices of the people the story is about start to blur together. And I liked that. It felt really productive to me and it felt really powerful, especially in a book that is about reclaiming stories that have maybe gotten lost and kind of passing them down in this sort of oral and flexible way. And so I think that's why eventually the the quotation marks started to feel, or the lack of quotation marks rather, started to feel right to me. And similarly, the, the fact that the chapters are not numbered. It is divided up into chapters, but they're not numbered because for me that suggested something that was being kind of um, fossilized on the page. Mm. And the stories that Bird is thinking about that his mother has told to him, and then other stories that feature in the novel as well, they're, they're kind of not pinned down in that way. They're being told. And I wanted the book to kind of mimic that feeling. You know, I didn't even notice the lack of quotation marks until I was about halfway through. And then it's like, oh, yeah, because it can be annoying. Sometimes you are reading something and it's a little annoying um, that there are none, but I didn't even notice. I thought it worked pretty well. Yeah, I, I feel like it's an interesting craft challenge as a writer to just make clear or decide when not to make clear what is being said as dialogue and what is being thought and what is just part of the narration. And so that was an interesting craft challenge, but it also, I think, let it let the narrative kind of take on the tone of something that's being told to you as well. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am curious about the title too. I'm trying to read my writing here on my page. <laughs> is it always our missing hearts? It, it wasn't, I, I have trouble with titles. And so I, I think they tend to stay, to wait until the end for me, because as I said earlier, it's not until the end that I feel like I actually have a sense of what I'm talking about, right? What the story is, what the world is. It's hard to title something until you really have a sense of it as a whole. And so I tend to just write I, I I got teased by my friends fondly in grad school and afterwards because I would submit manuscripts with just like title goes here where the title <laughs> should go. And it didn't have a title until I gave it to my agent and she read it and, and she was like, I think it's it's almost ready, but we need to come up with a title. <laughs> and and I was like, we, we can't we can't just have title goes here. And she said, no. Um, and so what we what we did was she had me go through the book and just jot down every phrase that seemed like it could be a title that it might speak to the book hmm. and i ended up using you know going through that that's actually how i came up with the title for little fires everywhere as well in the exact same conversation where she she was like you you need a title <laughs> um I was actually a little bit reluctant to call it Our Missing Hearts because that is the name, I don't think this gives too much away, that's the name of a book within the book. And it's also the name of a title within the, that book. And it's also the name of a poem within you know, that book. And it's a phrase that gets used in the book a lot. And I worried that it would feel a little bit too on the nose to call this book Our Missing Hearts as well. But I I came around to it because I like I liked all of the, the implications of the title, that the idea of missing hearts as being both sort of a metaphorical thing, a metaphorical stand-in for you know people who have gone missing, but also 
a suggestion of maybe a lack of empathy, which is one of the things that I think the book is, is looking at. And then the idea of our missing hearts versus just my missing hearts or the missing hearts, because there's a sense that it is a collective problem, that it's something that we as a larger group um, are grappling with and something that like we as a larger group need to try and address. Hmm. Yeah. So themes, you know, you mentioned lack of empathy, but um, are the theme, are themes ever something you're focused on? Um, I would imagine later in the revision when you're dialing it in or are, are themes what readers bring to you and say, this is what this book is about. (laughs) (laughs) Both. Honestly, Um, I remember being in maybe seventh grade English class where we had like a quiz, you know, we read that we think we were reading the call of the wild and the quiz was, you know, what are the, what is the theme of the call of the wild? And I wrote something like will survival. And I remember my teacher kind of put an X and was like, survival is not a theme. And I was given a do-over and I was like, loneliness and she's like loneliness is also not a theme and I was like I don't know what a theme is and I I still kind of don't know what a theme is um I I think of it you know I I use the word theme because I think that's the word that everybody uses but I think of it more again as questions um because again maybe it's because I just don't actually know what a theme is but I think about them as like big topics or questions that I'm trying to figure out like parents and children right or understanding somebody else's experience. And so for me, again, they, they always come kind of organically out of what I'm working on and out of the situation. I never have them at the beginning. At the end, I tend to have to look back and think, okay, what are the big topics or questions that I have? And that's always how I think about it. And then readers sometimes will come and come up with something completely different, but they tell me why they see it in the book. And I'm like, yeah, I think that's totally valid too. <laughs> well, I don't know. Loneliness seems to be a theme to me. I, I mean... thought it was, I thought survival was a theme too. <laughs> I don't know. It's been a long time since I read Call of the Wild, but I remember at the time just being completely baffled about what a theme was <laughs> and uh, it, it hasn't gotten a lot clearer to me. <laughs> what about, you know, I, I haven't asked you about PACT and I wanted to ask you about PACT um, which is a big deal throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about pact. Yeah, pact in the novel is a law or a series of laws that it stands for protecting American culture and traditions. And there are a series of laws that got passed in, in this world after a, a period of real social and economic turmoil. And the idea is that they're trying to remove things that feel un-American or disruptive, um, that feel dangerous to American society, which again is, is left to interpretation in this, in this world. And one of the big things about PACT is that it asks people to report things that they think are un-American. And this is how we end up with books being removed from shelves or certain topics being censored. And it also allows the authorities in this world to remove children from environments that they think are teaching them un-American things. And you can maybe see where the danger starts to come in because how American gets interpreted is pretty subjective. And so in this world, it's the law is often applied to 
Chinese Americans, East Asians more broadly, and then anybody who kind of speaks on their behalf. And so that's the world that Bird, this 12-year-old boy, has grown up in and has, has never really known anything else. He thinks that this is the way the world has always been, and he thinks this seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah, there's so much going on in this book, so much going on. Um, we are trying down to the end of our time. Um, oh, I have to ask you the really nerdy, nerdy question. I love before, nerdy questions. <laughs> before we, we kind of close, and that is um, software, font. Do you, write, <laughs> do you write early drafts longhand before you go to the computer? Do you use a typewriter? Anything you... Oh. Very nerdy. Okay. Um, so I, I tend to go with whatever is working until it doesn't. And then I switch it up. So generally speaking, I type on the computer because I can type much faster than I can handwrite. And I, it's easier to keep up with my thoughts that way. I tend to lose words and phrases and ideas if I'm handwriting. So my software of choice for the last two books has been this program called Scrivener, mm -hmm. which I love because, um, it's it's fairly inexpensive and the best thing about it is that it allows you to move pieces of your writing around very easily rather than having sort of one long document that you've got to kind of scroll through you can kind of chop it up into bits and move it around and for me because i'm experimenting with how to tell the story i'm figuring out where pieces go that makes it a lot easier for me. Uh, what I used to do is I used to write in Microsoft Word and I would kind of like copy and paste stuff around and then I would lose stuff. And I like that Scrivener makes the book feel kind of um, malleable in a nice way. I can, it's easy to move things around and if I hate it, I just put it back. Um, font, I tend to go with a pretty boring Times New Roman or whatever the default is in Scrivener. I actually don't know. Um, but I go with kind of a regular straightforward font because I want it to look as kind of bland as possible, like it's a manuscript page. Um, what else did you ask? When I get stuck, that's when I tend to go to handwriting. And so I do handwrite sometimes, especially if there's a particular description or a particular passage that I know is going to be important. I'll handwrite it in my notebook and I'll write it until I've got something to work with. And then I'll go back and type that. And usually in moving from the handwritten to the typed page, I start to tinker. And that's when I know that I've, I've got something that I can work with. Um, I don't use a typewriter because uh, I'm very slow. You ha I have a typewriter and I use it for other things, but you have to type really hard. And some people like that because it slows them down. But for me, I'm just a terrible typer and I'm, it's very slow. And uh, I save my typewriter sort of for, for typing poems, honestly, that I want to hang up on my wall. That's mostly what I use the typewriter for. What kind of typewriter do you have? I have, sorry, I'm looking at it. It's, it is a Remington Rand. I don't remember what the, it has a model name. I don't remember, but it's, it's from the fifties. So it's very kind of sleek and shiny. Um, I was told by the typewriter guy who, who sold me the typewriter. There's a, um, there's a, a, a typewriter store in Cambridge because um, Cambridge yeah. is the kind of great place that still has a typewriter store. Yeah. You have a great store. Yeah, um, and and the owner is great. He told me that this is because Sylvia Plath also owned a typewriter of this of a similar model, which is a fun fact, but I don't know if it's true. But it's it's very sleek and shiny and glossy. And when I see it, I do want to type on it, so it's mm -hmm. it's doing its job. Mm. Yes, I love typewriters. Um, so 
I guess in closing, I wonder if you have any any words of wisdom or advice for the novelists who are listening. Oh, I mean, the the advice that I have is probably nothing that hasn't been said before and better. But I think the best advice that I've had about writing is to read a lot, um, to read widely and to try and write widely. It doesn't mean that you have to love everything you read or even finish it, but it's, it's a little bit like taking a taste test. And in some ways it helps you define what you do want to do. If you read something, you're like, I hated that. If you can figure out why in a lot of ways that helps you figure out what you do want to do. Right. And likewise, if you're reading something and you, know, you just think, oh, I really want to do that. Spending time thinking about what it is that excites you about it or intrigues you, um, I think is, is really sort of a writer's education. It's, it's always reading and kind of being in dialogue with what's on the page. Yeah, I'm forever sort of nagging my students uh, to read, right? <laughs> Even you know, writers who like to read, but they're like, well, I just don't have enough time. It's like, you should be reading at least a book a week. Okay. <laughs> it's for me, it's, I mean, I get that. And sometimes I, I, I go through waves. So sometimes if I'm very deep in drafting something, I'm not reading a lot of fiction, but I, because I need to hear my own voice in a way, mm-hmm. but I am reading other things. I feel like it's sort of, you're just, you're feeding, you're feeding the process in a way. Um, I guess I always think of it as like compost, which is not at all a sexy <laughs> metaphor, but I, I think that I, 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 I do have a composter in my yard and I garden and the idea that you have to keep putting things in there or else it, it doesn't. So this is more about compost than anyone really needs to know, but it needs to reach a certain temperature and it reaches that temperature kind of by having a critical mass and there's, you know, bacteria going and that's when it, it starts breaking down all of the stuff into really rich material. And so I do think it's a great metaphor for, you know, a writer's brain. Um, It also takes a long time. It can't be hurried. Right. But you need to keep putting stuff in or the temperature of the compost drops and then it just starts to rot rather than kind of gently breaking down. And so one of the things that I learned when I was in grad school was I was just made to read stuff and it was stuff I wouldn't have picked up ordinarily, or it was stuff that friends recommended. And I go, I don't know, I'll try it because you recommend it. And I I think you've got great taste and love it or hate it. I always learn something from it. And so, you know, now that I don't have professors telling me what to read, I have to kind of make myself read stuff. And so I'll try and pick up lots of different stuff just to see what's out there. Hmm. I love the metaphor. I think that's a great metaphor. It's, it's not, like, it's not a great metaphor, but it also is actually a really good metaphor. So it's just, it, the problem is that you, then I find myself explaining a lot about compost, which no one in their right minds actually wants to know about, but it is, it's kind of what we do as writers, right? We take in a lot of stuff and we kind of break it down and we make it into something that's new and rich and new stuff grows out of it. So I love this metaphor. I love it too. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you. Thank you for for your podcast. And thank you also for the chat. It was lovely. That was Celeste Ng, author of Our Missing Hearts. Music and sound editing are by Travis Barrett. If you want to know more about the show or you'd like to reach out to my co-host, Marie Stone, Travis Barrett, or me, email penonfire at earthlink.net. Thank you for listening to Writers on Writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. See you next time. <laughs>